The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in exactly the right place. Stick around for the next 57 minutes and learn a lot. Our buzz today, cities, just cities, and it's a huge topic. Let me get started. We've got connected cars. We've got connected devices. We've got connected wearables. Everything is smart and smarter and so much more than what I just listed. But if your city was connected to the data that connectivity generates could provide predictive maintenance and smarter decisions to help your city run simple. That's the big word on the street today. Run simple. Get rid of the complexity. Get rid of all the cobwebs. Run simple, run efficiently, and run smarter. This is all a good thing if your city was connected. This raises some interesting questions for businesses, and that's our audience. We have businesses all over the world listening today. Can your company be part of such a connected future metropolis? There's a word that harks back to Superman, I think. We'll talk about that in a minute. And what about the societal impact of all this connectivity? What will it bring to the digital economy? What will the digital economy bring to it? A lot of questions. We're keeping this wide open today. I have a panel of three experts who are passionate about this topic. So let me start introducing them. First up, I'm pleased to welcome Joe Francica. He is Managing Director for Geospatial Industry Solutions at Pitney Bowes. And Joe sent me the following quote, very interesting, listen up. You can look at tables and pie charts and KPIs and graphs or one map. That's location intelligence, a business perspective that highlights proximity and juxtaposition and where. Joe Francica, I know where you are. You're right here with me here on Live, Transforming Your Business with Game Changers Radio. Welcome. How are you, Joe? Doing well. Thanks, Bonnie. I really appreciate it. Delighted well, to have you. Talk to me. Geospatial and proximity and juxtaposition. This is all uh, all stuff to me. Talk to me. What are we talking about? Well, I think by nature, Bonnie, people are very visual, right, uh, which is why we like charts and graphs in the first place. But in some respects, they don't tell the entire story, right, when, when dealing with the majority of data. Uh, I'm a mapping guy. I like maps. Maps are cool. You know, when most kids had their nose in comic books, I had mine in an atlas or one of those old Reader's Digest almanacs. People may remember that. Mm-hmm. Maps tell a unique story and give the person an understanding of proximity, right? You know, where were the sales of wonderful widgets in Seattle versus those in Santa Monica? The where factor is really a wow factor. And when trying to understand business and government data, that has a location component. And that's probably about 80 to 90 percent of all data. It's financial data, sales data, logistics, whatever. And when we start our conversation about smarter cities, 
I think our audience will come to understand and see that city government is really a geographically based business. You know, because, you know, if, if the mayor doesn't know where all those potholes are located and they, where they need to be fixed, you're going to have some irate citizens, and you probably won't get reelected. At least that's the case in, in my town. So my contention for business managers as well as city planners is that you can look at reams and reams of paper, digital spreadsheets, or graphs, or you can look at one map, and I think you get much deeper insights. Joe, very interesting introduction. Um, tell me, what is geospatial industry? What What is that industry? Is it is it geospatial here on Earth? Does it have to do with outer space? What do you look at? Well, it, it is here on Earth. It is all about digital mapping technologies. Uh, people in cities uh, who are using this every day in their mobile apps, they're, they're getting navigation directions on mobile apps, and so they're finding their way. But we look at it a little bit deeper. We like to analyze information and ask very interesting spatial questions, like find me all the Class A office space between 4th and Main uh, on December 31st. That's a spatial question, and we ask it every day. We just don't know what we're doing. We're doing it. Okay, thank you very much, Joe. Very interesting. I, I got such a kick out of saying, out of your saying when you were a kid, People, kids were looking at comic books, and your your nose was in a map. Uh, very interesting. You know the old old joke that a man would rather get lost for hours, wander in the desert, than ask for directions or look at a map. I think it was the wife who was always trying to unfold. Remember those great big maps we used to carry in our cars, Joe? Remember the, the ones you could maps. never. Fo- That's right. The old right, you could never fold them back the way they were supposed to be. Yes, I'm glad you were a map kid, and we're delighted that you found your way here to the show today. Thank you. Let me bring on our second guest. He is Stephen Goldsmith. He's the Daniel Paul Professor of the Practice of Government and Director of the Innovations of Government Program at the Harvard Kennedy School. And Stephen sent me a quote right out of his own book. He co-authored with Susan Crawford. The title is The Responsive City. Here we go. The digital age that has so changed every aspect of life can also fundamentally improve local government and raise the civic spirit of our people and the officials who serve them. Stephen Goldsmith, very profound quote. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Tell me about your quote. Let me, I was just listening to Joe. Let me go back uh, 20 <laughs> years, in the predice, not quite as a predicate to my quote. When I was mayor of Indianapolis uh, in the 90s, 91 to 2000, trying to do a lot of innovation and transformation, I was trying to outsource things. So I proposed an outsourcing co- uh, contract for print and copy, and uh, Pitney Bowes won. And we went to, to negotiate uh, the service level agreements, right? And the question was, what should we pay them per copy? And what emerged from the conversation is we should pay them for copies not made, right? So every time that somebody appeared at the city print shop to copy a piece of paper, that if we converted that to an image, we'd be smarter and we'd save money, right? So the contract was a contract with Pitney Bowes to digitize, not to copy, right? Well, that began kind of a 15-year journey through my work as deputy mayor in New York, my work at Harvard, to say, how can we digitally change the way cities operate? How do we gather information? How do we use that information? How do we make workers smarter? How do we let, you know, let's go back to the pothole story that Joe mentioned a minute ago, right? So, so how, how do folks report their potholes? Well, they do it with apps. How do workers get the, the work order assignments? They do it through digital images. How do they report back to their citizens? They do it by sending a, a picture of the pothole that's been filled. And even more so in a, an exciting smart city, the, the mayor and his uh, operations folks know where the potholes often are before they occur by looking at historic trends and doing predictive analysis. There's no aspect of city government that is not in the process of being changed through uh, digital tools. 
Very interesting. Uh, Stephen, we are just riddled with potholes here on Long Island. I don't know if you've been to New York recently, but I live in Great Neck on the North Shore. I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with it since you were deputy mayor. We, we, it's, it's like somebody just machine gunned our roads, and it's being repaired on a very selective basis, meaning in front of where I live and where my office is, that two-block stretch has not been touched because they can't decide who owns that part of the road. Is it Nassau County? Is it the town of North Hempstead? Is it the Department of Public Works? It just did some sore work. Nobody wants to take responsibility. So I'm in touch with council members and with mayors, and they're all sitting there saying, well, whose job is it anyway to repair this? So it does eventually come down to the human part, Stephen. I think you'll agree. But if we had an app here on Long Island that I could report this to higher ups, boy, that would be really nice. I have one question for you, Stephen, before we bring on our third panelist, and thank you for great explanation. Um, and we want to talk a little bit later. I want you to give us some snippets, if you can, of your time as Deputy Mayor of New York. That certainly must have been an amazing time for you. You say that all of this digital age, all of these changes and the improvements can raise the civic spirit of our people and the officials who serve them. What, in, in what way would it raise the civic spirit, the excitement of using an app to report things or getting responses faster? Tell me. Right. So there's an interaction here, I think, between the big data that's available inside government, the data that you know, SAP and others mine for uh, solutions. And the social media, right, the increasing and pervasive uh, use of uh, social media, uh, smartphones to communicate. So government is uh, often viewed as, in your example, unresponsive or arrogant, right? It doesn't listen to its citizens when it hears what they're saying. It doesn't act on them. So a, a civic spirit is increased when you as a community express yourselves and something happens. So uh, how do you plan for your park? How do you solve a problem in advance? How do you get a group of your neighbors to interact with uh, city government tools to respond uh, uh, to clean up a park on a Saturday? We're suggesting that the process of listening, the process of participation, the process of engaging is now maturing from that angry uh, town hall meeting where 100, 100 people yell at the mayor or deputy mayor, and then everybody goes away frustrated to one where the problems are identified earlier, the solutions are co-created, the answers are driven by data, it's a, and that civic engagement creates trust and confidence in your community, which becomes its own kind of virtual circle. Thank you very Virtuous much. Very, very optimistic. I'm, I'm very hopeful that things might improve. I'm going to have to uh, promote this show today to my <laughs> elected officials locally and say it's time for some more civic spirit of the positive kind. Thank you, Stephen. Good information. And let me introduce our third panelist who has been on at least one of our SAP Game Changer shows. We currently have 16 different series, 11 of which are in live production. Doing a little plug there for Game Changers Radio. His name is Dante Ricci, R-I-C-C-I. He is the Senior Director of SAP Global public services. And Dante sent me the following quote, the opportunity to execute a strategy to capture this information to improve livability is extraordinary. City government and private city service providers alike have the opportunity to remove the IT complexity that's built up over decades to unlock potential and transform quickly to seize the moment. So there we're talking about complexity, which I mentioned in my intro. The goal is simplicity. Dante, welcome back. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for joining me. Talk to me about your quote. A lot of meat on the bones here. Where do you want to start? Well, when you're making policy, when you're, when you're setting out policy objectives, lowering crime, improving education, reducing poverty, increasing economic stimulus, 
a lot of times you're having a hard time uh, both in the private sector and the public sector executing that because of limitations in IT. Redundant, redundant IT layers require too many resources to maintain or they're difficult to adapt. So you maybe, uh, as Mayor Goldsmith was mentioning, digitizing a particular area to be able to garner new information. You're, you have an old system. You can't adapt that particular system because of the complexity that's already been built in with older technologies. You have numerous unaligned processes with disjointed data services or sources. So those create delays in decision-making. So when we're talking about that map and bringing different information layers onto that map, then we need to have real-time or near-real-time data so that we have the right decision at the right time. And, of course, we have a lot of disparate systems out there that do not provide that real-time and unified view, not only for the government and their operations center across jurisdictions, but also a seamless citizen experience. There's no one view of the citizen and no one view from the citizen to the government in many cases. So what I'm trying to really point out is moving forward, we have to have government organizations think about having the right mix of technology that could be agile enough to, A, make it simpler for them to change and maintain, but also are designed for how they work and interact, similar to what we have with uh, consumer mobile applications today. Dante, that's all very optimistic, but I'm thinking cities love their bureaucracy, and Stephen could <laughs> chime in on this one, I'm sure. You really mean no matter how many apps we give them and no matter how much access to big data right now and how much opportunity to quickly seize the moment, and I love the way you phrase that, Dante, do you really think bureaucrats are going to give up those that spaghetti code of how they operate and how many meetings they have to have and how many people have to come to the meetings and how many petitions have to get signed and how many how many committees have to be created? What do you think? The human side. Can we do it? I'm an optimist. I think the glass is half full. <laughs> Thank you. Stephen Goldsmith, I'm sure you're just, just sitting there squirming. you got to say something. Thoughts on bureaucracy? Well, <laughs> I've had my own frustrations with bureaucracy. Generally, I've been part of one. But, but uh, let's take Dante's comment and your, your, uh, your uh, not cynicism, your, uh, your cautious uh, pessimism and say the following. Most people in public service are there because they want to do a better job, but they are caught in these rule-based systems where they do the same thing. The definition of red tape and bureaucracy is you do these needless activities. You have needless layers of supervision. What we're suggesting is because of the amount of data that's available in a smart city and the, and the interaction between government, private sector, and the public, that, that we can make the, the, the child welfare worker who visits a home, we can make the worker who's in the field smarter and when they're smarter they can use their discretion they can solve problems they need they need actually less supervision and more intelligent supervision that that gives them the information to intercede and just the way to wrap this up is to say we can really tell where the next fire is going to occur, where the next crime is going to occur, where the next mm-hmm. child is going to get hurt, right? So, so who are the outliers? And let's let government focus. And then as it, it trits and it gets smarter, kind of delayers the bureaucracy, the public servants at the, at the field level become uh, more confident of their work and they exercise their discretion better and the public is, uh, is, it has a better response. 
Thank you very much. Uh, I think I'm more of a realist than a pessimist. I don't know. Just just observing, just living in the midst of it all. I used to be a reporter for the local newspaper, and believe me, I saw it, I heard it, I felt it. People would almost attack me when I was writing articles. Say this, say that, write what I said, write, right. don't worry what right. he said. You know how it goes. Uh, yes. Joe Francica, I don't want to leave you out of this little premature roundtable we've already entered into. Any thoughts on what Stephen and Dante have shared? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Yeah, hopefully an optimist, because what I've seen is some of these siloed areas within city government, they're breaking down these silos where all of the data is stored. We've had little fiefdoms, you know, the... The, the tax assessor wanted his little uh, cadre of, of digital mapping data, and the bourbon planning guy wanted his. I think that's coming down mainly because of the necessity of budgets. Um, data has to be shared. Uh, the cities are looking at an open data policy where they not only have to share it among themselves, but they have to share it with citizenry, and that's providing a great deal of a foundation for economic development as well. So I think the silos are coming down. A little bit of education process has to be, uh, has to be done as well. Thank you very much. Now, you all know what time it is in the show. It's time for me to start with Joe Francica and ask you, where are you calling from? What time of the day is it? What are you drinking right now? Or what do you plan to drink after the show? Because this series, Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, is part of our bigger globally heard series. Well, they're all global, but our big flagship series called Coffee Break with Game Changers. So I want to know a little bit more about our panelists. Joe, what's in your cup? Uh, within my cup is a vanilla ice cream whey protein shake, and then the only reason is that uh, I like to work out in the morning and, and then replenish. But um, I'm stealing my, my son's stash of uh, whey protein because he's off at uh, college playing college boy. Uh, I'm in Huntsville, Alabama. It's about uh, 920, and it's a, a lovely sunny day. But, of course, in the south here, it's going to rain at some point. I think it's going to rain here in the Northeast, too. Now, ice cream and whey, can you tell us just briefly the proportions that you put into this and what kind of liquid? Is there milk or just ice cream? Yeah, no, no. It's actually it's actually just whey protein with uh, skim milk. So uh, mix it up with some ice, and uh, it's, a highly, it's highly caloric, and I'm, I'm a bit afraid of it because I'm trying to, uh, you know, I like to, to, to replenish, but I don't like all the fat that's in it, but, but it, it does help. I'm glad it helps with the workout. Stephen Goldsmith, we're going to give you a workout today, Joe. Stephen Goldsmith, where are you? What are you drinking? And tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> my drink is definitely less exciting. I'm in my, like, 12th cup of coffee for the morning, and I'm high in my office at uh, Harvard Kennedy School. We have a group of uh, officials from around the country visiting today. I run a program on innovation in government, and I'm getting ready for them to come for their annual uh, competition on where are the most innovative solutions for uh, uh, local governments in the U.S.? And uh, so I'm sitting in the office getting ready for that. Wonderful. And you said you've had a lot of coffee. I want to know a little more, Stephen. I'm not letting you off the hook that easily. What flavor? Is there a brand? Is it hot or cold? What do you put in it? Come on. Give me, give me. I find this question <laughs> highly intrusive. But um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, uh, I, I have a... Uh, a, uh, this d- disorder that causes me to work all the time. So I drink black, lots of black coffee all the time. And so uh, I worked out, came to the office early uh, this morning, and, uh, and I've been drinking black coffee ever since. I will let you rest at that. Thank you. Stephen, I think we have to invite you back with some of your uh, your interesting people you're talking to today uh, on another show about innovations in government. I think that would be very interesting. So put that in the back of your mind, and we'll talk later. Dante Ritchie, where are you calling from, and what are you drinking? I'm calling from Oakton, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., a sunny day at 1020 a.m. 
I am drinking green tea as I do every morning. I'm on my third one, probably the last one for the day. But if I had my choice, I'd be going to the area coffee shop where you can pick an LP right off the wall and then play that record on their record player. I guess everybody uh, lines up for their particular song. So that's my favorite little place to get a coffee. What's the name of the place? Uh, I think it's called Cafe Amore. Fair. It, you, you did say LP. Now, a couple of us on this call know what an LP is. I think Stephen Goldsmith probably remembers those. I'm just guessing. Joe, do you remember what an LP was? Yeah, I hate to admit that I'm that old. You can admit it. I, I admit it all the time, every time I'm on the air. I'm a, almost a leading-edge boomer, so you're safe with me. Dante, uh, how do you know what an LP is in a record player? Were you introduced to those by the coffee shop? I hate to say my age. I could probably sound younger than I really am, but we used to have them at my house growing up. I love it. Really? Of course. Wow. I still have a closet full of LPs. I don't know. You can't get rid of them. Nobody wants them on eBay, so I just keep them there for nostalgia and just to keep, just to take up extra room in the closet. I don't have enough of that, but it's just for fun. Very interesting panel. I'm delighted to be speaking with Joe Francica at Pitney Bowes, Stephen Goldsmith at the Harvard Kennedy School, and we have to say he's the former deputy mayor of New York under Mike Bloomberg. That must have been an interesting lifetime and a half, however long it lasted. And Dante Ritchie at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to edition number, let's see, episode number eight in our recently new series, Transforming Your Business with Game Changers Radio. A shout out to our sponsor, Becky Weber at SAP. And the topic today, if you haven't guessed, is Smarter Cities, the Future Metropolis and Societal Impact. And we've already gotten a great start. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Joe Francica and I are going to open the roundtable and we're going to talk about Mayors. Ooh, that M word. Yes, we are. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be back in about 90 seconds. You don't want to miss the rest of this conversation. And Wilson Zoo, thanks for tweeting. I know we've got a bunch of people on Listen Only, and I hope they're going to tweet too. Make sure you include hashtag SAP Radio in your tweets so I can retweet during the show. Here we go. Bread out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We are witnessing a monumental shift in the way work and business are done. Leaders are looking to radically simplify their organizations while simultaneously engaging and empowering employees to achieve more. These leaders are also seeking to leverage exciting innovations born from interactions between people, businesses, and things in our newly responsive and intelligent, hyper-connected, networked global economy. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how leaders and their teams can help shape the future of change. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers. 
back in our very important topic today that affects everyone. You live somewhere. You probably have a city in or around or under or near you. Our topic today is Smarter Cities, the Future Metropolis and Societal Impact. I'm going to kick off the roundtable segment of the show now with Joe Francica at Pitney Bowes. And Joe sent me the following very interesting question and comments in his notes before the show. Joe asks, what is a mayor's focus every day? He says it's about jobs and economic development. The mayor, he or she, is concerned with the available job market, land availability, building factories perhaps, ways to attract new business. Let's stop there. Joe Francica, let's talk about what a mayor does every day. Please start us. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of knowing uh, Mayor Tommy Battle here in Huntsville, Alabama, and um, and sitting in on his Economic Development Council for the last two years. And I, I was really, it was an educational process. I mean, it's exactly what he does. Um, he'll he'll want to know what the available land is, what's the, uh, you know, the, the availability of our educational uh, situation. Do we have enough people in the job workforce that could you know, help a new manufacturer that's coming into town. So, I mean, these are the things that, that, you know, require his attention every day. So, you know, down here in Huntsville, have a large footprint of the defense industry, which is now, you know, having their budgets cut. So how do we replace that tax income if we start losing workers? What's the brain drain going to be in terms of the impact? So there's a lot of questions swirling around about not only drawing in either new manufacturing, new retailing, as well as keeping the high level of PhDs that occupy NASA and the Redstone Arsenal down here. Uh, we don't want to lose those people. Uh, and it's a critical concern. So he's always looking for new opportunities in terms of attracting new talent. Um, that's what I've witnessed uh, with him. And uh, it's, it's remarkable because it isn't just about trying to get elected the next time around. It's, and it's not just about filling the potholes. It's really about attracting new business. Very interesting, Joe. Uh, you, I'm reading here from your bio. You were on Alabama Mayor Tommy Battle's Economic Advisory Board, as you mentioned. Did you ever have any aspirations to be a mayor, Joe? No, <laughs> no. Oh, it, I, you know, it may have crossed my mind, but um, I've really had the pleasure of, of, of knowing a mayor about I've actually had the, uh, the pleasure of interviewing uh, Martin O'Malley when he was uh, governor of Maryland. I know he was mayor of Baltimore. And I always ask these folks, you know, do you manage geographically? Do, do you manage with any of the technology tools that you use? Now, Mayor Battle has a whole department here in Huntsville, just on geographic information systems. And he does call on these people uh, regularly to, to do things for urban planning and, uh, and economic development. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at, at what he's able to do and his vision. So it, it's been a great experience for me. Thank you. Before I bring Stephen Goldsmith into this, one more question for you, Joe. Um, my question is, what? let's level set. What size community are we talking about when we use the mayor word? Are we talking about we have uh, 15 incorporated villages where I live here in Great Neck, and it's like every three and a half blocks you've got another village, another mayor, another police force, another set of rules, another set of traffic fines, maybe another pool, maybe another tennis court. Do they share contracts with three fire departments on this little tiny peninsula? What can I tell you? These are little teeny weeny, almost like little miniature somethings. Uh, what size company community rather and city are you referencing when you use the word mayor yeah so uh, mayor battle is kind of a, a strong mayor or strong mayor uh form of government uh, five city council members and um we're about a quarter of a million uh size in the in the total metropolitan area 
So, you know, he, he really sets the tone for the, you know, for the city. There is a city manager, um, but I would say Mayor Battle sits at the top of the food chain. Thank you very much. Stephen Goldsmith, I know you have a lot to say. Please join us. <laughs> well, uh, what the mayor focuses on, you know, often is driven by the emergency of the day, right? The question is, how does the mayor uh, have a vision for his or her city, which instills confidence while taking care of the day-to-day work of City Hall, right? So, you know, a grand economic development plan, the basic attention to kind of roads and sewers, education and safety doesn't make any sense. And similarly, uh, you know, attention to day-to-day activities without any vision for your city doesn't make any sense. You know, one of the things I found that was interesting between being mayor of Indianapolis and deputy mayor of New York is the problems are pretty much the same. The scale is just enormously different, right? And so mm-hmm. what we're trying to say both in this show and kind of in this set of questions is, you know, how can you do the, you know, all cities, regardless of how small or how large, virtually all of them, have more demands for public services than they have resources. So how do you deliver those resor- those services more effectively, freeing up resources for the ability to build a better community? To, to further your vision. And so what we're talking about, I think, from the first part of the show to now is how can we use data, how can we use a sense of place, how can we use these geographic information tools, how can we use predictive analytics, how do we use social media to both listen to the public better, to reconfigure the way we deliver services, and then execute on a grand vision because it's the execution of day-to-day activities which gives the public confidence in their elected leadership and a willingness to follow that elected leadership when they stretch to do really big and bold things. That's what a mayor does in a little city, and that's what a mayor does in a big city. Thank you. We'll have to uh, have to write that on the side of a, of a road, put it on a big billboard so more mayors know what to do. I appreciate that. Uh, in terms of scale, is there any city city bigger then New York City, when you were deputy mayor, what did you, just what was your day like, briefly, Stephen? What did you do as deputy mayor? Well, Mike Bloomberg um, was, you know, driven by performance accountability and, and metrics, right? So, uh, you know, I was the deputy mayor of operations. Uh, there were several deputy mayors. So I was kind of in charge of the, you know, the day-to-day activities, and the goal was to make sure the basic work of the city got done correctly. It was, you know, there's a very kind of professional bureaucracy in New York City that's, that is quite capable of performing the day-to-day activities. So the question becomes, right, as the, as the city grows, as complexity grows, uh, as the demand for resources grow, then, you know, how do you, how do you change that bureaucracy? And, and you know, I'm, I, I teach innovation, I like innovation, and so the, the question for me is not how to make uh, each day-to-day's activities work, because they work pretty well on their own, but how do you make them more um, more flexible, right? How do you make them more able to handle the unexpected? And so the day-to-day activities of, uh, of, a, of a city as large as uh, New York City are, are pretty complex. I, I might say it's kind of in closing it, and as it relates to kind of the issue uh, of this show. So it used to be that really big cities could acquire technology that little cities could not, right? That New York City had more access to technology than Indianapolis or Huntsville or the like. You know, with the the advent of cloud computing has so changed the access to sophisticated tools by mid- and small-sized communities that it's, it's the innovation of the mayor, it's the leadership of the mayor, it's his, of his or her willingness to kind of change the status quo that drives breakthroughs, not the scale of the city, but the commitment and leadership of, of the person that's elected at the top. 
Thank you, Stephen. Great insights. Dante Ritchie, join us. Thoughts? A lot of conversation going on here, a lot of topics. Where do you want to jump in? Oh, well, you have a, a, a myriad of great comments by our guests around the ability to serve citizens and the best way to serve citizens. And one thing that Mayor Goldsmith just talked about is how do we change when complexity grows and populations grow and you want to continue to build in the economic stimulus to make sure that everybody has a livable city. The one comment that I need to really hone in on when we think about cities in general is we want to not only make the technology flexible and drive forward positive economic and safety within uh, or, or better education and better safety within cities, but we need to make sure that these lift these particular policies and the technology that we that we implement to make these policies successful lift everyone up in the process because if you look back at CompStat for Baltimore, for instance, they reduced crime, but then now we see years later that there's pockets of, of folks that were kind of left out and not identified as those that may need help or were not uh, treated equally. So in this particular case, we need to make sure that we bring everybody up and make every citizen, improve livability for every citizen, and that should be a goal for all of us. Thank you very much. Uh, Joe, you want to chime in or Stephen on what Dante just added, either one of you? Well, I, I want to pick up on one of the comments that, that Stephen had because he mentioned public safety. Um, it's really a, a critical issue in, in any city, but um, the emergencies of the day uh, oftentimes take precedence, and that's where we need technology to support us. And it, it starts with, um, and I'll, I'll use the term, interoperability of our technology. Um, technologies need to talk to each other, whether you're talking about mapping technology or radio communications and getting that information to the first responders as they need it. Um, that, will, that, that will impact a city uh, greatly and will impact you know, how we feel about our city government and whether they're actually able to perform. So how does technology to support that? How do we get technology into the hands of the fire chief and the police chief and educate them as to the, some of the new technology, the, the big data that's, you know, coming down, the, you know, the, the streams of information, how do they assimilate that information quickly? Um, it goes back to my first comment, you know, you can look at streams of data but sometimes that map is really critical in getting, you know, where where is my accident, where are all my first responders in real time, not, not just on a static piece of paper, but giving them a tablet, giving them information that they can go and make uh, real-time decisions. So that's, that would be where I would uh, comment. Thank you. Stephen, anything you want to add before I move to some comments from your notes, Stephen? Nope, I think that's good. We're, we're ready okay, to move. Okay, good. Good, we're ready to move. I'm looking at a couple of notes here from Stephen Goldsmith. I'm going to read just a couple sentences and you take it where you want to. You say data sharing among government departments and with the public, and I think that's where I want to go is how much data and how do you share it with the public, opens communication channels while obviously increasing transparency and enabling problem solving. And then you add one more thing here, Stephen. You say the free flow of data generates constituent trust and confidence, which are the civic glue necessary for prosperity and encourages the engaged citizenship that helps drive change. So let's talk about free flow of data and data sharing. Is this at work anywhere particularly well? Is it a concept that's being worked on now? Is it, is it in our future? 
real sharing among government departments. Right, right. Well, we have data sharing among uh, government departments and data sharing uh, between the government and its its residents. And in both of these areas have so dramatically changed in the last uh, few years, right? We have an open data movement uh, where many cities now across the U.S. are using a couple of providers in particular to uh, put their data sets uh, uh, in a way that's available to the public. You know, a, year, a few years ago when the open data movement began, it really meant just kind of posting uh, ugly uh, PDF files online and letting people try to figure out what they say. Now it is uh, very easily and consumable information with uh, APIs that make it easy for people to take the data and 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 develop products or services or solutions or hold uh, the city accountable. So the open data movement has has really gone to uh, uh, great um, has made great uh, progress and then and then you have the the fact that uh, the open data movement and data analytics have allowed data caught in government verticals to be used by other verticals. I was in a conversation recently with an epidemiologist in the city of Chicago who were saying that their insights into city public health data are now much easier for them uh, because they can go to open data and look at what another agency is doing or saying in in, in real time and as uh, as uh, Dante knows, you know, in a kind of a fascinating way, the, the state of Indiana now uh, has set a standard in the country for using very sophisticated data mining tools to pull data out of government verticals and look at what that means in terms of the health of a child or solving infant mortality. So we have a combination of open data tools and data mining tools that have a, have really totally changed the way you know government government set up vertically. People live horizontally, right? So they don't live in the transportation department. They don't live in the welfare department. They don't live in the parks department. They live in a neighborhood. They live in a system of, of a school system, a neighborhood system, a peer system, uh, or the like. And so we now have the technology tools that allow us to co- configure solutions that, more, that are more systemic and, and less vertical like they used to be. Thank you. That was a great explanation, Stephen. Uh, we live horizontally, and, and the, the infrastructure is vertical. I, I appreciated that. I was picturing it, and it made a lot of sense. Never heard it said that way before. Dante Ritchie, thoughts on what Stephen just talked about? He's absolutely correct. When I call in or you call in for, about your potholes, because we all have them after the winter, we're not calling into a specific person, but we're calling into a specific department. That department may or may not feel obligated to fulfill that particular need. So other departments need to have that view of what's, what's being called in to fix that particular pothole or reduce the trash on their particular street or, or uh, erase graffiti. So it is. It's a horizontal view of the citizen and a horizontal view of the government. So I completely agree 100%. Thank you. Joe Francica, thoughts? Um, you know, I, I want to go back to the comment about, about open data. I think that is a movement that has, you know, finally come to fruition. Um, there needs to be more data sharing, as I said earlier, between government departments and the citizens. And I do think that that's leading to more economic development. Okay. Thank you very much. Anybody, anything else on this before I move on to some other thoughts from Dante's notes? Everybody good? Everybody's good. Okay. Dante. You sent me an alternate opening quote. I didn't use it in the opening of the show. I just want to get it in here because it was very profound. It was from John Kenneth Galbraith, and he says, all of the great leaders have had one characteristic in common. It was the willingness to confront unequivocally 
the major anxiety of their people in their time. This and not much else is the essence of leadership. And I think Stephen covered that in terms of what's the latest crisis in a big city like New York. Dante, any, can you just share with us why you picked this as an alternate quote, and then I'll go into some of your, your talking notes? Absolutely. I think when you talk about smart cities, when you talk about governments that react versus being proactive in nature, when they need to understand and really get things done, they need to really focus and converge on the, the issue that is really agitating the citizens. So without being able to focus, converge, and agree on solving that issue, technology and policy alone will not be able to move us forward, but a combination of the human factor and being able to come together to collaborate to fix that particular problem. Thank you. Uh, Stephen or, or Joe, any comments on that quote before I move to Dante's notes? Anybody? I will take that as an agreement then. Okay, Dante, uh, interesting couple thoughts here. You say ultimately the data from Connected City, all of these connections, is continuously contributing to a knowledge-based unmatched in human history. I'm just going to leave that one on the table because it's a profound statement about where we are. But what I want to talk about is you say the web of connections in and around cities is blurring the traditional boundaries between citizens, government, and private industry. These stakeholders are opting to use interactions between intelligent assets, products, and people to garner better personal business and public policy outcomes. So let's talk about opportunity here. What do you see? I see a, a blending of private and public organizations utilizing that open data and the breakdown of the data silos to find new business opportunities within the city and also to better serve citizens. So when you have these web of connections in and around the cities, these stakeholders that are coming in are trying to understand how to use that data best. So you look at Boston with Uber, and they're buying Uber's data to be able to improve the transportation system. When you're looking at Barcelona, they have a new tourist app that they're going to be rolling out that uses iBeacons to see how tourists, where they're going around uh, the city, what is most popular, what, are the, what kind of lines are, are taking shape at these different tourist events so they can make suggestions on going to other areas and then allowing businesses, for instance, to come in and use that same data to offer those particular citizens and tourists uh, specific offers as to where they're located in the city. But the question remains as to who really owns that data and who and what, are the, what is the monetation or monetization around that data. Because if you want to be sustainable and have a sustainable business model, by using that data. Is it ad revenue, for instance, in Barcelona that's going to allow both the government to reduce those uh, lines in, for tourists for their particular locations so that they tourists come back to the city and recommend the city? Is it the businesses to get more business because they're able to locate the specific tourists that want to have alerts to give them offers and get more business? Or is it another particular business model that we're that is unknown today that we have to think about. So there, that's just one example of how we're blurring the lines between private and public, the use of that data, the use of the open data. What if somebody in a particular county, which has happened, uses open data to develop a mobile app for better transportation for bus schedules or metro? Who owns that data? Can they actually profit from that data, or does, should the city be able to own that data? So these are the, these are the type of questions that uh, are, remain but the, the whole point is we're bringing better value by deriving more insights from these multiple data sets. Uh, 
And as time goes on, we'll flush out these particular business models. But there's definitely a blur between these different sets of uh, what I call for-profit and not-for-profit areas and the government. Thank you. Good insights. Joe Francica, thoughts on what Dante just shared? Yeah, I, I would really agree with what Dante commented on, uh, the, the ability to share uh, data with you know, public or private entities is, I think, giving citizens a better feeling about their community and their ability to interact with others in the community. I, I think it, it leads not just to an efficiency in, in some of these things like, you know, the transportation network, but gives, I think, the citizens a better, uh, a better feeling about, look, my, you know, my city is working. Um, you know, the whole issue with, with open data, I think, is, is, as I said before, coming to fruition, and I think we're going to see more of that. Um, so, I, you know, I'll leave it there, but, but I, I totally agree with some of the comments Dante made. Thank you. Stephen Goldsmith, thoughts? Well, we have um, basically uh, the production, if you will, of, you know, sound overlay academic, of public value, right? So how do we make our civic spaces, how do we make our quality of life better? Well, it's not driven exclusively, obviously, by government, right? And so we're looking now at not, not only as government as a provider of services, but government as a platform, right? And from that platform, and in purposes of this show, we're talking about a platform of information. How is that platform available to the uh, public? How is that platform available to civic uh, tech entrepreneurs and hackers? How's that platform available uh, with a technology company that might be an outsourced provider of a, of a, a certain service, right? So, so all of those things create public value. And what we've seen now is that because of the open data movement, because of data mining, because of the uh, enterprise tools that are available, because of cloud computing, because of the ubiquity of mobile devices, that uh, the whole approach of government and its interaction to cities and the talents of the public employee in solving those problems all are dramatically changed. So Joe and Dante are right. It's that kind of collection of uh, value-added pieces on top of the open data that is so uh, hopeful about change. Thank you, Stephen. Dante, this was your topic. Any thoughts on what your co-panelists just commented? No, I love the elaboration. They really rounded it out. Uh, you wanna, only one other point is when you think about mm-hmm. public safety, there's no monetization of that. We all have interest in, in safety, and so there's new ways to use data for, from both the government standpoint and the citizen's to report those particular crimes, the way to get down to uh, reporting on uh, problem properties or in real time, being able to utilize Twitter, for instance, in huge uh, crowds to alert uh, different uh, alert people about different issues. So as we all evolve and learn about social technologies and utilizing open data, it's really an open field right now for new innovative ways to use this particular data, and, and really exciting, actually, to, to watch unfold. It is exciting. And, I like that a lot. Go ahead. I heard somebody. Who's yeah, talking? Bonnie, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, uh, and, and I really appreciate Stephen's comments because cities do have to think of themselves as a platform provider. It's how we start. You know, how do we uh, initialize this uh, understanding that the government has technology that can be shared? What we started here in Huntsville is something called TechVet. Um, we have a, a nonprofit organization that's supporting the ability to have technology companies, small companies, not big companies, small companies come to the table, uh, talk about their technology with the stakeholders in the room, with the police chief, with the fire chief, 
uh, in the room listening. It's a non-threatening environment. It's a way for the companies, yeah, they do a little ad promotion, but they're exposing the technology to the people that are going to need it. So we here in Huntsville are trying to start that with the mayor's support and, and through a nonprofit organization to actually vet technologies that will be able to provide a foundation for developing new technology. Thank you very much. Joe, I'm going to revert back to some of your talking notes. We have a little bit of time, actually nine minutes till the end of the show, and I'm going to reserve about 90 seconds for each of you to share your crystal ball predictions for what this topic would be like at a future date. But there's an interesting comment here in your notes. I don't know if we address this particular terminology, but I, I think it's a good information for our listeners, Joe. You say what you ask the question. What makes a digital city? I don't know if we've used that term. And you add, it's not the Internet of Things. It's the Internet of Infrastructure, the subsurface infrastructure like the sewers, the telecommunications, the airport security. It's not glamorous, but you say it's what gets mayors reelected. You want to talk to me about that? Yeah, right now what cities are doing is they're mapping both the surface and subsurface structures, and they're using sensor technology to monitor essentially the health of those systems. You know, how are my sewers performing? You know, are the utilities running at optimum efficiency? Are now the buildings that are of public or private uh, asset, are they running efficiently? Are they conserving energy? And who is monitoring that information? Is there the network, is there the communications network that is able to monitor this, this stream of sensor data, what we tend to call the sensor web, so that the people that need to know, the utility managers, uh, the, the city manager, can monitor the health of all of this infrastructure information. And this is only growing. We're really at a nascent stage of sensor technology. But if all of our buildings are connected, all of our roads are connected, all of our utilities are connected, we'll be able to, both as citizens and as the city government, to monitor the health and then take action on the information that we glean. And this all goes back to our discussion of big data and how to assimilate that and, and as Stephen has said, you know, do predictive analytics. Thank you. Stephen, any thoughts on this? And, Dante, before I move to predictions, we've got seven minutes left. Anybody? Nothing? Stephen? Dante? Nope. I, I, you good? You yep. said it all. Okay, good. Uh, Stephen, question for you. Is this, you agree with Joe that this is what gets mayors reelected? Well, you know, we, I, I named my book uh, Responsive City, not Data-Driven City or Data Analytics mm -hmm. or the like, although the book is all about how to use data, you know, how uh, Boston about results is a front-facing scorecard that citizens can see, how Indiana is driving down infant mortality through data analytics, but in the end, the stories combined a responsive government. And so, you know, Joe's right. You, you, you don't get elected based on your use of data. You get elected on, on how responsive you are and, and what type of leader you are with respect to getting your city to have a, a bright future. Uh, what the show's about, what the book's about, what my work's about is that we are now sitting on top of a set of technology tools that are uh, were unimaginable even 10 years ago that allow mayors and their officials to produce so much more responsiveness and such a higher quality of public services that those who wish to lead now can do it in a pretty dramatic way. Thank you. Guess what? 
Time for the crystal ball predictions round. I'm going to circle back to Joe Francica at Pitney Bowes. And, Joe, let's see. We've got five minutes left. I'll give you each – why don't you each take a full minute for your predictions, and then I'll come up with a bonus question if we have any extra time left. I doubt we will. Joe, fast forward. Can you put this conversation in 2020 and tell me what would be different, or do you have a different time frame? I'll give you 60 seconds. Predictions, Joe Francica, go. Yeah, I think what we're going to be seeing, and we're already looking at uh, the connected car, the connected building, the connected streets, I think in, in five years that on, that connectivity will only build. Um, the question is, is how are we going to monitor the health of all of the sensors that are out there? Will there be a, a question of privacy because we've given up a little bit of that in order to get information. We, we haven't talked a little bit about that, but I believe some of our privacy fears may be allayed. I think there'll be more, uh, uh, there will be ways and things in place that will help guard against uh, privacy leaks. But I do think down the road we will have even more access to the data than we formerly had. And as I mentioned earlier, I think we'll be able to access the information on a more real-time basis. We're already doing it in our homes with Nest uh, thermostats and other types of sensors. I installed a, a system to turn my lights on and off through a, a communication hub. We'll be able to interact directly with some of that type of sensor information in the city uh, from, from the city, whether it's sewers or cable providers. So that's what I'm looking forward to in the next five years. Thank you very much, Stephen Goldsmith. You're up. One minute predictions. Go. Well, I'm uh, I'm optimistic. You know, I see uh, uh, field workers with more discretion solving problems. I see citizens uh, joining with their government through open data platforms to uh, suggest solutions to problems to help improve the quality of their neighborhoods. I see a city that can use predictive analytics to um, uh, preemptively solve problems even before they occur. I can find, I can see vendors who are held, you know, who deliver services, even nonprofits who, whose performance can be evaluated through the use of data. So I see an engaged public, an engaged public workforce, uh, higher levels of performance, and a better quality of life for cities who use these tools combined with uh, the quality of the leadership in City Hall. Thank you. Very optimistic. Appreciate that. And let's turn to Dante Ritchie at SAP. Dante, one-minute predictions. Go. Yeah, I think the terminology is going to stay the same when we talk about smart cities, intelligent cities, digital cities. The reality is going to become a little bit more mainstream as the infrastructure catches up with some of these really unique and, frankly, innovative technologies and ways we're using technologies. Everyone likes to be smart. Cities are no different. But the terminology for the technology enablers will change. I think we're going to go from responsive city to possibly proactive city because uh, Mayor Goldsmith was talking about predictive capabilities, and I think those are going to mature over the next five years. We're going to see ability for cities to really understand where they can prevent crime, where they can prevent infrastructure from falling apart to eliminate some of those risks for the citizens. The one risk I have, I think we're going to find, is if we don't keep back, keep going back to our foundational technologies to bring everything up together and we continue to do what I would call science projects for apps and, and those type of things, we need to make, uh, bring all our technology from the enterprise up to standard to be able to share that information in the right way so that we can bring and improve livability for every citizen. 
Thank you very much. Very profound predictions from all three panelists. I have a bonus question. It's a yes or no answer. Joe Francica, Pitney Bowes. Will all of this excitement, these sensors and this connectivity and this optimism for the future of our cities and engaging our citizens in making decisions, will this bring more millennials wanting to be part of government jobs, of the government infrastructure? Yes or no? Yes. Stephen Goldsmith? Maybe. Ah, all right. One sentence qualify the maybe. Go ahead, fast. It will provide opportunities for millennials to be more uh, involved in government if government changes its structures, if it allows the use of these tools and allows the use of discretion. Millennials, I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School. My students who want to change the way cities work, sometimes they go into cities if they have right leadership. Often they go into nonprofits. The structure of how we manage cities has to change to allow technology to take root. Thank you. Great point. Dante Richie, yes or no? Millennials in government excited or yes? Are they going to go or not? I'm a maybe as well. We have to inspire and empower these employees in the government to do more and to help them achieve policy objectives. And right now we're challenged with some of that. So I'm a maybe as well. Okay, very interesting. Thanks. Glad we had time for that. Joe Francica at Pitney Bowes, thank you. Stephen Goldsmith, Harvard Kennedy School, thank you. Dante Ritchie at SAP, thank you. I thought this was a great conversation. We covered a lot of territory, and I sense there's some ray of hope in there, some optimism that we're moving, our cities are moving in the right direction, smarter, more caring, more engaged, and that we're going to enjoy being part of cities more in the future. Shout out to Becky Weaver at SAP for sponsoring the series. Wilson Zoo, my hero, you rock. Your tweets are amazing. Go to hashtag SAP radio and see all of the wonderful wows, the words of wisdom Wilson has captured from our panelists' comments on air. And thank you also to whoever is tweeting at SAP Public Sector. Appreciate that too, Brad and the Business Channel team. Thank you very much. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. I think I'll be back later with another edition of Business Innovation with Game Changers. I tell you, tomorrow I'll be back 11 a.m. Eastern with a new edition of Coffee Break with Game Changers and Thursday a new edition of Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. So there, here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.